I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by our wonderful sponsors at the $10 tier and above of my Patreon page at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Once again, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Producers, Credit shoutouts to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Dan, Brian, The Warnerd, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Ish, Orc, Black Tuna, Nobody, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Elliot, Colin, Michael, Matthew Ho, Brace Belden, Trans Natural Pod, Galen, Justin, Nick W, Chance, and the Mere M E E R Project. If you'd like to join those listeners in getting your very own producer's credit, on each and every edition of Parallax Views, consider joining them in supporting me at the $10 tier or above on my Patreon page at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And now, on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, we've got not one, but two great interviews for you. Later on, we'll be hearing from Lise Will, true crime author of such books as Hunting the Unabomber and Hunting Charles Manson, on her latest book, A Spy in Plain Sight, the inside story of the FBI and Robert Hansen, America's most damaging Russian spy. But first, Ira Shapiro, author of a number of notable books on the U.S. Senate and its decline as an institution, joins us to talk about his new book, The Betrayal, How Mitch McConnell and Senate Republicans Abandoned America. So without any further ado, let's get right to it with the first segment of today's show, Ira Shapiro, author of The Betrayal, How Mitch McConnell and Senate Republicans Abandoned America. 
Welcome to Parallax Views, guests that I'm very happy to have on. Ira Shapiro, author of a number of books, including the one we'll be talking about today, The Betrayal, How Mitch McConnell and the Senate Republicans Abandoned America. How are you doing today? I'm good, JG, and I really appreciate the chance to be with you and to, to reach your large audience of interested listeners. Well, thank you very much. And, and also, uh, I guess before we get into the betrayal, uh, this is, I, I believe, your third book um, dealing with the Senate. Uh, previously, you wrote uh, Broken, Can the Senate Save Itself in the Country? And then before that, The Last Great Senate Courage and Statesmanship in Times of Crisis. And I, I want to talk very briefly, especially about that book, The Last Great Senate, because I like that title, Courage and Statesmanship in Times of Crisis. We need more of that today, especially the statesmanship part. So Let's talk about what, what was the sort of last great Senate? What were you writing about in that book? And uh, also, how has the Senate changed over the years? I've spent probably too much of my life obsessing about the Senate. I got hooked on it early as an intern after I graduated college. I was living through the last constitutional crisis where Vietnam and other things, assassinations, and my heroes morphed into Watergate. And it was a period of crisis. And the Senate seemed like a great outlet for somebody who wanted to be in government. So I, I went there. I, I came back, served 12 years. And then many years later, looped back, troubled by the Senate's decline, to write about the last great Senate. Spoiler alert. It's the only great Senate, the Senate of the 60s and the 70s, which maintained some momentum into the 80s. But the, that was a Senate that dealt with the problems of the country endlessly, continually. It was a Senate. It had its issues, but it didn't get obstructed. And it dealt with the problems. It worked with presidents when it could, and it held them accountable when it had to. So, and it was based on bipartisanship, mutual respect and trust, all of which is lacking in the present Senate. The decline's been a long one, um, but I have a view that it was sort of a long gradual decline that accelerated when one person came on the scene as leader. I, I wanna talk a little bit more uh, about uh, Mitch McConnell, but is there anyone else you would point to as uh, playing a role in the decline of the Senate? Uh, any other figures? I know uh, you mentioned Newt Gingrich in the book once in a while, so I wanted to yeah, talk yeah. a little bit about Gingrich. Oh, my God. <laughs> no, no. I, I Look, I think that a fair assessment of our politics and the long decline and polarization of our politics would lay would lay responsibility on sort of big factors, the parties actually being further apart, the parties really aligning on uh, regional, racial, ideological grounds. Those things would have made governing difficult anyway. But I think we look back, we will find that two people played a particularly nefarious role long before Donald Trump. And that would be Gingrich, the politics of destruction, politics as war, and McConnell, 
Those will be regarded as the two people who influenced our politics most and worst. So another thing I wanted to get into, and I want to get into uh, the figure of McConnell more, but what do you think some of the, do you think there's any key misunderstandings that Americans may have uh, about the Senate and its purpose that maybe we could help demystify the Senate in some ways for people? Because I think some people have um, views that aren't always, you know, uh, correct about the Senate, or they have very, um, I would say, cynical views about it, uh, especially in the age of characters like Mitch McConnell. But it, it has served a purpose uh, historically. It has. Um, but I, I, look, I think cynicism and frustration and anger about the Senate is very appropriate now. The public distrusts and despises the Senate. The senators don't like the institution they're serving in. So it's all justified. At its best, the Senate serves as what Walter Mondale once called the nation's mediator. It ought to be the place where the parties come together and work on looking for common ground on the country's hardest problems. That's what it should be. That's what it was at a time when I had the privilege of working there. Um, but we've lost that. The Senate hasn't been able to overcome the polarization. And by institutionalizing it at the highest level of government, it makes the country, it exacerbates everything and makes the politics of the country worse. Now, I'll just add and we'll go on, but I'll add that I don't accept the view that it has to be that way. I think the senators have a particular responsibility to overcome those differences and their failure to do that, and particularly McConnell's failure and what he's done to the Senate has made the situation vastly worse than it had to be. So with regards to McConnell, do you think McConnell um, sort of follows uh, that Newt Gingrich politics of destruction uh, method? And, and what do you think uh, sets uh, McConnell apart uh, from other senators? Well, I think McConnell would say that he does not follow the Gingrich method. But in truth, you end up in the same place. McConnell, what sets McConnell apart from the others, I think, is that he is a very, very good strategist and tactician, that he rose over a long period of time to his position. And it's a tribute to his skill that he has surfed the madness of the Republican Party, right? I mean, all Gingrich and a whole series of House Republican leaders have ended up on the side of the road, uh, rejected, defeated, disgraced. But McConnell is finishing 16 years as a Senate leader. He will tie the longest serving Senate leader, Mike Mansfield, at the end of this year. So he's a very skillful person. But that's, I guess that's the good news. The bad news is he never uses his skill for the, to advance the interests of the country. Um, I, when you write a serious indictment of someone, 
you have to try to be thorough and you have to try to be very fair. So I've given him credit for everything he's done for the country. It just didn't take many pages. So in, in regards to McConnell's history, uh, how do you see him as evolving over time? Because he does sort of start out uh, claiming to be like a, a moderate uh, sort of conservative. But I think over time he's shown himself to be uh, just a figure that is mainly concerned with how can the Republican Party win? You know, that that seems to be his game. Um, so could we talk a little bit about his evolution over the years? Yeah, I think you make a good point. I think he started out as pretty much of a garden variety, moderate Republican conservative. But over time, as the party moved, he moved and somewhat reflecting the changes in the party and then somewhat influencing them as time went on. And my criticism of him is that he has only used his considerable skills as a partisan, not for the nation. And the reason it's particularly important to say that is that first, I believe senators have a national responsibility and a special responsibility. They're not supposed to just be partisans. They're not state legislators either. They can represent their state, but they're supposed to have the national interest in mind. So that's number one. But the second part is particular responsibility for a Senate leader. Those leaders are people who are supposed to work across the aisle, work with presidents even of their own party, they have a special responsibility. And he completely broke with that model. You can't recognize anything about what Senator Le Senate leadership used to mean when you see McConnell. And I, I wanna deal with um, McConnell even before Trump. So, so I wanna yeah. talk about the Obama years. Uh, yeah, I really love the, the title of uh, that second chapter, McConnell's Bitter Harvest. Uh, that one really stands <laughs> out. And I, I like how you talk about how- I love really... the fact that you read the book so closely. <laughs> well, I, I love the fact that you talk about how he was really planning out an opposition strategy immediately afterwards. He's a, he's a very, uh, in a lot of ways, you have to credit for, you know, he, he, yeah, he yeah. knows how to play politics. Uh, yeah, so yeah. let's talk about that. How did he sort of deal with the Obama years? Well, but I think that's that is really an important point. You know, my book is essentially about the Senate's performance during the Trump presidency and then the year of Biden. But to get there, you have to understand where the Senate was and where McConnell was before that. Long before Donald Trump came down the escalator in 2015, we had a politics that was broken and a government that was dysfunctional. So what's the reason? Well, you know, sort of Occam's razor, the simplest explanation is sometimes the best one. McConnell started out as a reasonably respectable Senate leader for a couple of years, but that was when George W. Bush was president. As soon as Obama was coming to office, 
McConnell shifted into being the leader of the opposition. He planned to oppose Obama before the president even was sworn in. Very vividly described in his own memoir what he was doing. So now that opposition, you know, he's a Republican. I understand some opposition, but that opposition was total and it was irrespective of what was happening to the country. We were on the teetering on the brink of the Great Depression, going into another Great Depression. And McConnell's only concern, and he says it, was bringing down Obama's approval ratings, making sure he couldn't succeed. That's shameful behavior. That's shameful behavior. It's unpatriotic behavior, and it's the not, it's the beginning of a long pattern of behavior like that. And I want to talk about McConnell. In, in relation to Trump, because, I, you know, Trump over the years <laughs> has said some, you know, nasty things about McConnell. And yet, you know, they, they have a very interesting relationship. And I think uh, it's important to talk about, uh, you know, the issues that matter the most to McConnell. It seems as if he's really concerned with the judiciary and also uh, he really hates the Affordable Care Act. So let's talk about that. <laughs> well, if you ever have a chance to hold up my book cover, the book cover is essentially the melding of McConnell and Trump. So they have a complicated relationship. But look, McConnell did not think that Trump was going to win the election. Uh, but he was very careful in 2016 not to be critical of Trump. You know, Paul Ryan and others were agonizing over Trump's behavior and everything, and you know, just agonizing. McConnell saw no purpose in that. This was the Republican nominee, and so he just played it straight. And then he came up a winner. Trump won, and McConnell said, you know, said publicly and privately, you don't get these kind of opportunities very often. United government, Republican government. And so he took advantage of it to pursue his most important priorities. As you say, the overriding priority of the court, the courts, and most particularly, most familiarly, most impactful, the Supreme Court, and his personal priority, which was hating and trying to repeal the Affordable Care Act plus the usual Republican priority of tax cuts for the rich and business. In that regard, McConnell succeeded totally, except on the Affordable Care Act. But he, he and Trump were never close friends, but Trump grasped, as you know, and you, many of your listeners may know, Trump grasped the importance of the court. He didn't know about it much, but when it was presented to him as something of a political imperative, he grasped it. And so they worked together on the courts. They worked together on tax cuts. McConnell supported deregulation. And McConnell, sold, McConnell and Ryan sold Trump on, let's get rid of the Affordable Care Act. That wasn't Trump's idea. 
So it's interesting that the picture that I think in some ways I get from this, and I, you know, <laughs> I, I, maybe these are too strong terms, but I almost feel like uh, McConnell is this character who is willing to sort of make a deal with the devil, you know, Trump in this case, uh, just for his own opportunistic benefit. Well, look, let me, let me, let me state it as fairly as I can, or, or as, as, as fairly to McConnell as I can. McConnell says, he's, he's written, he said, I'm a conservative. I'm right of center. I have a view of what the society, you know, what the country should be. I believe that Republican presidents are closer to that view. I had a Republican president. I worked with him. And his view is basically Democrats are trying to socialize the the republic. Democrats are, or he says, Europeanize. He likes to say, America isn't France. By that, I think he means people aren't supposed to have health insurance if they can't afford it. You know, too much government benefits. He has that view. He has the view that there's too much government regulation. We have to cut back regulation. Uh, Now, I would say that whether that, I mean, that's his view. It's also a view that reflects the donor base of the party that he has worked very hard to understand, develop, and pay off. So particularly the fossil fuel industry and the NRA and the gun manufacturers. But look, he has a view. And so he would say he doesn't make deals with the devil. He tries to stop Republican Democratic presidents and tries to help Republican presidents. So then... Another really interesting part of the book for me is uh, looking back at the role McConnell plays um, in the confirmation of, of Brett Kavanaugh. Could you speak a little bit to that and uh, why that's such an important part of this story? The whole Supreme Court situation, of course, is his, this is his legacy. This is the thing he's proudest of. <clears throat> Thunder, four thunderbolts in five years blocking Merrick Garland in 2016, changing the rules so that the Democrats couldn't filibuster a Supreme Court nomination and Gorsuch in 2017, and putting the steel in Trump's spine on on Brett Kavanaugh in 2018. Kavanaugh's nomination, as we know, was in a great deal of trouble, uh, particularly after Christine Blasey Ford came forward and accused Kavanaugh of sexual abuse. Trump even wavered on Kavanaugh, but McConnell and Don McGahn, the White House counsel, put the steel in Trump's spine and McGahn told Kavanaugh he had to fight back. And they got it through, even though 2,400 law professors said that Kavanaugh had disqualified himself with his tirade before the Senate Judiciary Committee. The National Council of Churches dropped its endorsement of Kavanaugh, abandoned it. But Matt McConnell hung in and he got Trump to hang in 
and they got Kavanaugh, and that was the fifth vote on the court. So it's a big moment in history. There's a really uh, great line you have in the book um, where you talk about uh, disagreements where uh, between McConnell and Trump. And I love the line you have here, uh, but McConnell saw nothing to be gained from attacking Trump. And I believe this is in regards to Russia. Uh, there was every reason to turn the page by moving on to a better topic for the Republican Party, an issue with profound long-term impact where he could work with Trump, not against him. So it sounds like his his main goal uh, is really about, you know, how, how do we keep the sort of Republican Party uh, going and how do we keep winning over the Democrats? Yes, that is his main goal. But you, you quote something that's interesting, and it I wrote the third book out of anger because of the catastrophic events of 2020. But I also wrote it to correct the record a little bit because my second book ended on a moderately optimistic note and because it went through the first 10 months of Trump. And it showed some signs that the Senate got the understood the danger that Trump posed, particularly with respect to his relationship with Russia. The Senate responded very strongly to that in the beginning. When Comey, uh, FBI Director Comey was fired, the Senate put sanctions on Russia that Trump couldn't block. Special Counsel Mueller started his investigation. The Senate Intelligence Committee started their investigation. There was a lot happening, and you would say that's what a Senate ought to be doing. But over time, that faded, and the independent voices in the Republican Party either retired or died. And so McConnell, I think particularly after the Mueller report, basically fizzled. Then it was all Trump had license to do anything. So it's interesting for me, the other part of the book that I, I think is important to cover here, and it may be uh, you know, the, the biggest betrayal of all the betrayals uh, that get covered in this book is uh, the insurrection. Uh, yeah. Because McConnell, I believe, sort of uh, tried to distance it first. Uh, from the insurrection. But I mean, he, he doesn't really want to impeach Trump. So let, let's talk about that, his reaction to the insurrection and the fallout. Yeah, well, look, in one of my other interviews, I was asked, you know, I mean, the, the betrayal, that's a pretty harsh term. Uh, and I thought about that a lot before I used the betrayal. And the betrayal is based on the fact that the senators had a special responsibility to check an overreaching president. That's their fundamental responsibility. That's not something citizens are supposed to do on their own. They had a fundamental responsibility and they failed it completely. And they failed it in a time of catastrophe for our country. So with the respect to the insurrection, on the morning of January 6th, McConnell wrote a, made a superb speech about the whole big lie, rebutting the notion the election had been stolen and saying, you know, Joe Biden's the president, let's confirm the electoral college results, et cetera. 
The problem with that, oh, and that was a prelude to his great speech February 13th in the second impeachment when he condemned Trump for the insurrection, inciting it. The problem with it is it was too late on the first speech. McConnell let five weeks go by after the election before he acknowledged Biden's presidency. And that was the period in which the big lie flourished. 50 million Americans probably believed it by the time McConnell decided the election was over, number one. And number two, even after the insurrection, McConnell blames Trump for it and still can't bring himself to convict him. So too late and too little and always shame. So before we start closing out, I also wanted to ask, I always love looking at the uh, quotes used at the beginning of a book. And you have a few quotes uh, from various people, including Nancy Pelosi's comments about uh, the founders uh, never would have suspected we could have a rogue president and a rogue leader in Senate at the same time. Uh, But the one quote that really stood out to me for some reason, I was hoping you could explain why you included it a little bit, was... uh, Under Secretary of State George Ball, dissenting from the escalation of America's engagement in Vietnam, 1964, he says, he who rides the tiger cannot choose where he dismounts. Uh, Why why did you feel uh, like including that quote? I felt that it was uh, very evocative. Well, at one point, thanks, JG. At one point, that was the only quote I was going to use. I've carried it around in my mind for many decades, and I thought I'd use it sometime. I think McConnell particularly misjudged the situation and thought he could control it in a way that he couldn't. I think he believed that when he decided the election was over, it was over. I think he believed, I think he misunderstood Trump's depravity. And I think he made grave mistakes in that regard. And what you find is, He who rides the tiger cannot choose where he dismounts. You know, you might think it's time to end the ride, but it didn't work out that way. In other words, uh, you know, he he couldn't necessarily be the the lion tamer, you know, taming the lion of Trump. Yeah, I mean, look, he, I think he said, look, election November 7th, The networks and the Associated Press say Joe Biden is the president-elect. Very few of the Republicans acknowledge it. McConnell says there's no real, you know, the president's within his rights to bring legal challenges. The world, the republic won't come to an end if he brings his legal challenges. That was a message, was an anodyne statement that was not a neutral statement. It was a message, there was something irregular here that was wrong. Five weeks went by, the big lie fomented all over the country. What would have happened if McConnell and the other Republicans on November 7 had said, well, it's a hard presidential campaign, hard fought under difficult circumstances. We didn't win. Joe Biden's the president-elect. We'll be back in four years. There wouldn't have been 50 million people who would have bought the big lie. 
They bought it because Trump said it and nobody rebutted it. No, no Republicans rebutted. So I just had two more questions. Uh, the first is sort of a, a broader question about, you know, the moment that we stand at now with the Senate. And I, I think a lot of people in America right now, especially after this latest um, horrible shooting, have become really, I, I think, uh, cynical about things. Like I said earlier, cynical and feeling as if uh, the, the government is in, a, is in a state of paralysis uh, but w- where do you see the Senate heading um, in the future? I mean, should we be more hopeful? Uh, do you see any positive signs? The book ends with a call to action. Uh, I see no really positive signs about this Senate. I think the call to action is to change this Senate in the 2022 elections. I have tried various other strategies, namely, hoping the independent, more independent and moderate Republicans would be a regular force joining the Democrats. But they haven't been. And I don't think they will be. And so they'll wring their hands and they'll do certain things, but they won't do enough. The answer here is to elect Democratic senators and defeat Republican senators to diminish McConnell's power and incidentally, diminish Joe Manchin's power. The Senate would be different if you had 54 Democrats. I know the climate is bad politically for the out-of-power party. I mean, but the map is good, and we've got some great candidates. That's the only thing that will change the Senate at this point. And the last question I wanted to ask you about, I know you... um... You know, you're also you were also an ambassador. You served as a chief U.S. trade negotiator with uh, Japan and Canada. Um, so I was wondering because I always enjoy talking with people who have uh, been in the ambassador type role. Uh, yeah. What do you think people should understand about the, the role of diplomacy? Because I feel like ambassadors are some of the best people to talk about about the the issue of diplomacy and the need for it. I think we need a renewal of diplomacy in America. Could you talk a little bit about just your thoughts on uh, the need for diplomacy in this country? Well, I yes, I will, but I'd love to come back sometime and we could just talk about that. <laughs> um, no, look, I think, I think diplomacy is crucial. And one of my criticisms of the Senate is that the confirmation process is so screwed up that we don't have very many ambassadors that have been confirmed around the world. But diplomacy is crucial. And look, Joe Biden, uh, in response to Putin and the invasion and war in Ukraine, has done a lot diplomatically through to build up, rebuild our relationships with NATO and other countries, we're in a far stronger position in the world than we were when when Biden came into office. Part of that is Biden's skill and part of that is the, the war in Ukraine. But diplomacy is absolutely vital. And I think that it goes on, has to go on on a regular basis. But one of the difficult legacies left by Trump is that he gutted the State Department. He gutted the Foreign Service. 
Tillerson and Secretaries Tillerson and Pompeo were very damaging to the Foreign Service. And so we have to rebuild that as well, even as we figure out how to confirm the political appointees. Well, Iris Shapiro, I want to thank you again for coming on Parallax Views. Everyone should really check out your book, The Betrayal, How Mitch McConnell and Senate Republicans Betrayed America. And uh, is there anything else you'd like to say in closing? I really appreciate the chance to talk with you and your audience. Uh, You can learn about the book at my website, www.irishshapiroauthor.com. But I'd love to come back at some future point if you have time. Thanks, JG. Next up, Lise Will joins us to discuss her new book, A Spy in Plain Sight, the inside story of the FBI and Robert Hansen, America's most damaging Russian spy. And this is a wild story, let me tell you. It even involves, of all things, the extremely conservative and sometimes controversial Catholic group known as Opus Dei. It's a wild story about a man who simultaneously presented himself as a staunch anti-communist while also giving secrets away to the Soviet Union. It's really fascinating, and Lisa Will joins us to tell the tale. So without further ado, Lisa Will, author of A Spy in Plain Sight, the inside story of the FBI and Robert Hansen, America's most damaging Russian spy. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I'm really happy to have on, Lee Swill, author of A Spy in Plain Sight, the inside story of the FBI and Robert Hansen, America's most damaging Russian spy. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me on. So if you could, uh, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about uh, how you look at this book in comparison to uh, some of the other books you're known for. So you've written about the hunt for the Unabomber, and the right. hunt for Charles Manson. So how, how would you relate uh, telling those stories to telling this story? Well, they're all bad guys, right? <laughs> and they all escaped for a long time. I mean, Manson, uh, his parole officer didn't take care of him. I mean, he was, you know, he, we know what happened with Manson. And then after the, after the murders, um, it wasn't investigated properly. It just took a long time to actually get the right guy. And the Unabomber is the longest hunt in FBI history. I mean, it went on for, you know, 20 years. I mean, a long time where he was, you know, really um, endangering and scaring this whole nation. I mean, I remember that well. And with Hansen, you know, as the title says, Spy in Plain Sight, he spied for the Russians while being an FBI agent for 20 years before the FBI figured it out. So they're all manipulative. They all have great relevance to today. People still follow the readings of the Unabomber, Ted Kaczynski. They still use the playbook of Charles Manson in different cult-like settings. And here, what was so interesting to me and relevant to today is I asked all of the FBI agents and CIA operatives that I spoke with 
you know, could there be another Hanson today? And they all said to a one that yes, there could be. And then unprompted by me, many of them went on to say, and there probably already is. You know, in today's world with Russia vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine, that's extremely frightening and scary. So I think it's interesting. Uh, with Robert Hansen, he's not the first case of espionage. There's other cases right. you even mentioned. Uh, some of these cases, I think you mentioned the Rick Ames case and mm, other cases yeah. going back to the 1950s and whatnot. But Hansen really, uh, I, I think, captured the imagination. He gets caught after uh, the Cold War is over. Uh, what is it that makes Hansen's case so egregious? Well, that he was able to do it for so long while being an FBI agent. Also, that he approached the Russians. They didn't have to flip him. He approached them in his first communique with them that he gave over the identification of one of our top Russian assets, a guy named Polyakov. And I described what the Russians do, which is execute him in a very heinous way. And they videotape that execution so that it will deter other people from becoming spies. You know, that's the start of his career with the Russians. I mean, pretty damning for him. And this is a guy, this is what's so interesting to me too. This is a guy who compartmentalizes his whole life as his psychiatrist told me, because on the outside, he's a devout Catholic, Opus Dei even, goes to mass every day, says the Russians are godless people, commies, all of this. That's what he's portraying to the world. And yet, he is, you know, trading um, secrets with the Russians this whole time and, you know, having people killed. I mean, as a direct result of what he does, he has people killed. And this is a devout Catholic. I mean, come on. I was going to say, too, it's interesting. So he goes to the Russians. It's not the other way around. Yes, yes exactly. Within his first year of being an FBI agent, he approaches a guy named Cherkoshin, who eventually becomes his handler, and says, he doesn't say that I'm Robert Hansen, he doesn't identify himself. In fact, the Russians don't really know who they're dealing with until after he's caught and you know he's the subject of you know major national, international headlines. But yeah, he approaches them. I mean, you gotta really think about what's going on, what's going on in his crazy warped head. If you could, could you talk a little bit more about uh, Hansen's background? I wanna get into his, um his Catholicism and the, the sort of Opus Dei connection, but also uh, what do we know of Hansen growing up? I know his uh, his family life wasn't necessarily perfect, especially with his dad. Exactly. His dad was a cop in Chicago and we would say, we would definitely call it child abuse, what he did to him. I mean, you know, wrapped him up in a blanket so he couldn't breathe. I mean, all of this horrible stuff, you know, uh, denigrated him, made sure he didn't pass his driver's test the first time when he was going for his license. I mean, all of these crazy things that, you know, good parents don't do. And I interviewed at length um, his best friend, who is still his best friend, a guy named Jack Hoshauer. And Jack told me that he had always had, since a kid, a great uh, fixation, really, with James Bond. You know, everything James Bond, the glamour, the allure, the saving the damsels in distress, you know, the gadgets, all of that. And he wanted to be this, you know, smarter than everybody else, glamorous guy, when in fact, he really wasn't. I mean, he was kind of a, a nerd and he became, he went on to be a nerd in the FBI. And I, I like nerds, I'm a nerd, you know, but he was a computer guy. Um, and within the FBI, they appreciated his computer abilities, but you know, it's not really what they're known for. They still are pretty bad at computerization, but um, he just, you know, he 
He didn't really get along with his colleagues. They didn't appreciate him enough, according to Hanson. This is in Hanson's mind. And he was a disgruntled employee who felt like he was smarter than everybody else. I'm just curious. So he had a nickname in the FBI. He was known as the mortician. What, mortician. what was behind that nickname? <laughs> you got that. Um, he always wore black. He always had a very dour expression on his face. And he didn't really, you know, when there were things to, you know, the FBI, you work hard, you play hard. He didn't want to go out with the other agents. He didn't want to mingle. He didn't want any socialization. Just this very off-putting guy. Plus, you put in the Catholicism, which he was always preaching about. Um, and nobody really wanted to hang out with him at all. So it, it's interesting. I want to talk about his Catholicism a little bit more because he, yeah. the Opus Day connection is interesting because I think, you know, there's all different types of Catholics, but it's obvious he, he came from a very sort of, um, I, I would say, conservative sort of end of Catholicism, uh, very devout Catholic, very anti-communist. Uh, so maybe you could talk a little bit about, he, he doesn't start out Catholic, he converts, yeah. right? He converts when he marries Bonnie, Bonnie Hansen, who is, she and her family, uh, the Walks, and I interviewed the brother-in-law, Mark Walk, are all Catholics. So when he marries Bonnie, he converts and he really converts. I mean, you know, again, proselytizing everywhere at work, which doesn't, again, make him friends. But um, that's the, the cloak that he wears is, is this Catholicism. And it also plays in at a very important time when early on in his spying career, if we can call it a career, um, Bonnie finds cash in a sock drawer. And she and thinks it's uh, the mistress, right? It's for his he mistress. He thinks it's the yeah. mistress, right. You know, so she confronts him because he's, you know, he's had affairs, we believe, before. And she, he says, oh, no, no, it's not for a mistress. I'm just spying for the Russians, as if that's better. And, and she says, this is where the Catholicism comes in. She says, well, let's go to our priest and the priest will know what to do. So they go to the priest. I sound like I'm starting a joke. I'm not. Uh, but they go to this priest and the priest says, um, spying, that, that's a bad thing. Shouldn't do that anymore. But I'll absolve you of it. I'll absolve you of your sin if you just pay back the money that you've made to the church, which Hansen does. And he stops spying for a little bit and then takes it up again. And we don't know that Bonnie ever really knew after that. You know, she may be one of those wives or spouses that thinks something's going on, but doesn't want to know. And even though she's paying for groceries and cash, you know, that kind of thing. But that's the one time when, he, you know, he could have been stopped by this priest. And instead, the priest just says, give over the money to the church and go, go on your way. So that, that's interesting, uh, just that when he's wife comes to him saying, oh, where's this money from? Is it another mistress? Right. He basically just he literally just comes straight out and says yeah no, that's that's from spying on the russians for for the yeah. russians <laughs> yeah 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 and and she's Phew, i'm glad it's not a mistress you know but the idea that you then you go to this priest and he says it's okay well he doesn't say it's okay but he says i'll absolve you of your sin if you just pay this money to the church which stops him for a nanosecond and he picks up again what do you think the um the importance of that story is to that, that small part of the story is to the, the broader picture of a spy in plain sight. Uh, do you think he he sort of was emboldened by that? Like, oh, I got away with it with these two people. Or... You know, that's a really good question. And I think you're exactly right that here was a chance where he was caught, you know, red handed and he admits it to his wife. And the priest really gives him a pass. 
So I think, you know, I'm not a psychologist, but I spoke with his psychiatrist, Dr. Charney. I think that just emboldened, enabled him to go forward even more because it was okay. And Charney, the doctor I spoke with, who was his psychiatrist after his arrest, the defense hired him, said Hansen was able to compartmentalize better than anyone else he knew. You know, he could he could compartmentalize and say, I'm doing that over here, and but I'm still a good Catholic over here. I mean, it's warped thinking. You and I don't think that way. But when you get, when you write these books and when you research this, you have to get into the mind of the criminal, right? To try to think like they're thinking. So with regards to your discussions with um, uh, Dr. Charney, what were the biggest insights you got about Hansen from Charney? And, and maybe how did Hansen sort of... Uh, make a picture in a set where he sort of thought he was the good guy. This is again, warped thinking, but compartmentalization. And then this idea, and this is from Charney, that he was actually doing America a favor because by showing the Russians these secrets, he was showing them that we're really not that bad. And therefore they, the relations with Russia would be better. It makes no sense. But this is what Charney thought was, you know, possibly how he rationalized it to himself. And was there anything else you got from those those conversations with Charney that um, or interviews with him that maybe stood out to you? Like what 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 was the most telling thing you you sort of got from the conversations with the psychiatrist of, of Robert Hansen? Yeah, well, I was looking for motive, right? What motivated him? And Charney gave me some of those pieces, like the warp thinking about he was actually doing us a favor. Jack Hoshauer, his best friend, the um, James Bond portion of it. And then, you know, all these colleagues talking about, as we discussed in the mortician aspect. So you've got a guy who is narcissistic. Charney confirms that, you know, I didn't really need him to, but he did. Narcissistic, feels like he's not appreciated at work. So a disgruntled employee, wanting always to be the smartest guy in the room, needing money, wanting glamour, and somehow feeling like he was doing us all a favor. You put all those things together, you've got the complex motivation that is Hanson, but what was really eye-opening to me is that it's not peculiar just to Hanson, right? This could happen to other people and has these similar motivations. So it sounds like uh, th there's multiple motivations that work for Hanson, exactly. including you know, there's an ego aspect to it. There's money. So there's all these different motivating factors. Right, right, right. I mean, money is always the easy thing to hone in on, but it was more complex than that with Hansen. So how does the intelligence world become aware, hey, there's a mole? And I, I think they had a, a code name for it. Um, gray suit, I believe, was what gray it was. Suit, right. How, how, right. Do they, how do they start becoming aware of this? And also, we'll have to talk about Brian Kelly, who... Uh, sort of put sure. through the ringer. Sure, sure, sure. So they become aware of it because all the Russian assets are dying. I mean, they kind of wake up one morning and say, we have nobody on the ground anymore giving us intel. There must be a leak. So they start a, a mole hunt, basically. The FBI is conducting it. But the FBI, and this is one of their fatal flaws here, is they don't want to look internally. They don't police themselves. They don't believe that it's somebody within the ranks that could be betraying the country so so badly. So they look, they do a matrix, you know, a computerization basically where they put people and agents into this matrix, figure out, well, this agent knew this about this and this guy got killed. 
and they make this whole matrix. Like they're people, they're called the vault people because they were working in DC in a windowless room. And they come up with this matrix and the matrix that they, they hone in on, the guy they hone in on is this Brian Kelly, who's a CIA officer. Now, Brian Kelly is no longer with us, he passed. But I spoke with his widow, Patricia McCarthy, who told me that the false accusations, and they were absolutely false, uh, really destroyed him. You know, here's a guy who had been a stand-up CIA op operative for many, many years. His daughter was in the agency. She got marched out when Brian Kelly was fingered. He headlines are that, you know, this is the guy, this is the worst, you know, agent forever, since forever. He's under house arrest. And even when the FBI figures out that it's not Kelly, that it's Hanson, they don't tell Kelly because they don't want to tip off Hanson that they've got the wrong guy. I mean, so put the put through the ringer, absolutely. He and his whole family were wrongly accused. So then why did it take so long uh, for the eyes to go on to Hanson then? You know, there was a report done after the arrest called the Webster Commission, a big fat report. And the thing is that they, you know, to boil it down, they said the FBI didn't didn't look at it internally. They didn't police themselves. And that is the easy and and, you know, sometimes the easy answer is, is the one that's right, right on target. They just didn't want to think it could be someone within their ranks because, you know, the FBI is based on trust and you know, trust, but verify to coin that phrase. And they didn't do that. They didn't do an upgraded polygraph, any polygraphs. They didn't do an upgraded security clearance. Heck, I was a, a federal prosecutor in my fifth year. They did an updated security clearance, updated background check on me, just because, you know, things can change in those five years. In 20 years, they never did an up, uh, you know, upgraded or, um, you know, did again, a research or background check on this guy who was at the top of our counter espionage unit, you know, focused on Russia. They never really, you know, kept tabs on him at all. Could you talk a little bit more about how he actually uh, sort of rose through the ranks within the counter espionage unit? Yeah, I mean, he started out as, you know, a regular line agent. And because he was so good at computers and because so many other people really didn't want to get involved in upgrading the computerization. He, so he's basically he an IT whiz amongst people that aren't IT. Whiz. Yeah. And think about it. Those guys, I mean, they're not down, you know, knocking heads and knocking down doors or anything, but they have access to all top level secrets because they can get it, they can get them through the computer, not just, you know, what their unit is working on, but what the whole FBI is working on. And at one point, I'll give you an example. At one point, he hacks into another colleague's computer, an FBI agent's computer, and he's caught. And they're, they're like, you know, what did you do? Why did you do that? That's wrong. And he said, oh, no, no, I hacked into my colleague's computer because I'm just showing you how weak our system is. And I, Robert Hansen, can fix it. And they said, oh, okay, you know, go ahead, go along your way and do it. Because <laughs> they really didn't want to, right? They didn't want to get involved in IT. And the scary thing about it for me now is when I think about it is that back in the day, Hansen was, you know, low tech. He was just copying stuff off a Xerox machine, shoving it into his briefcase and walking out. Now with computerization, the way it is, it, you know, it, in, in this country, in the FBI even, um, you don't have to Xerox anything, you know, put it on a thumb drive, put it in the cloud, walk out and no one would be the wiser. That is 
kind of terrifying. Is there any reason maybe that they would, you know, trust Hansen instead of uh, pointing towards him? I, I guess like, is there reasons they thought, nah, this, he's, he's probably a good guy. He's not, you know, he may be a little bit creepy, but we don't think he's dangerous. And that's exactly it. They thought he was a little creepy, but not dangerous. They thought he was a little weird, but not a spy, right? Because he just kind of was a computer guy. So they didn't think of him. They didn't think of him until finally a Russian asset that we turned and then we paid $7 million. And I confirmed that, 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 that money, $7 million to get basically a little audio cassette, which they played to try to, you know, this was a, the the spy talking with the handler which they played and didn't get it instantly because they weren't thinking even then about Hansen and finally they were able to say wait a second that voice there that's Robert Hansen and then they started a whole sting operation to get him to get the evidence they needed were this to go to court but again that was after almost 20 years of being a successful I put in quotes spy uh, could you talk about some of the other key figures that figure into the story? Uh, I'm particularly thinking of um, David Major and also uh, Mike Rochford. David Major and Mike Rochford, uh, both of them with the agency and uh, with the Bureau, I should say. And, you know, were very, very helpful. Jim Olson, another example. I mean, I, I really do appreciate how much the FBI opened up. These are former agents that talked talk to me. Rochford led the hunt for Hansen, you know, the mole that eventually became Hansen, went on the wrong track with Brian Kelly and then was turned around, of course, when they got this info from the Russian asset. Uh, David Major, Dave Zadie, Jim Olson, uh, Gwen Fuller, all of these agents really were um, open with me. And they have hindsight now 20 years since his arrest to talk about what they did wrong and what they did right and what they need to do in the future. That's that's something I wanted to get into. What what do you think? I mean, we've sort of said what the FBI did wrong already. What do you yeah. think the FBI did right or, or how did they rectify things? Well, when they figured out that it was Hansen, they were in a unique position because Hansen was facing mandatory retirement in four months, which meant that he'd be out of the FBI. And if they didn't gather enough evidence to you know get him on espionage, they couldn't get him, which obviously would be a bad thing. They couldn't use the information that they gotten from this Russian asset because he didn't want to be on the stand if this went to court. It would be, you know, the Russians would kill him. So they needed to start the case afresh. And they did that and they got him in less than four months. They basically set up a whole new office, a fake office, a fake job for him, set him up in this fake job, gave him uh, an assistant who was basically, you know, spying spying for us and waited until he made the communication with the Russians and actually did a drop. I mean, it was kind of dramatic, right? They, he goes to make the drop and the FBI is there. They swarm in on him, they arrest him. And what he says when they arrest him is interesting that he says, what took you so long? And he always to the end has to be the smartest guy in the room, kind of rubbing it in the face that the FBI is not all that adequate. It's interesting because it sounds like, um, you know, he, he's not only arrogant, but he's almost, uh, I would Very use arrogant. a stronger word. He's, he's, um, he's hubristic. He has a lot of hubris. Yes. He doesn't think he's going to get caught. Yeah. Exactly. Well, I mean, think about it. He hacks into a computer. He's not caught. 
his wife finds him out and he's not really caught. I mean, the the priest says, you know, go along your way, just pay your money back. His brother-in-law, we haven't talked about this, Mark Walk, his brother-in-law, who was an FBI agent, tried to turn him in and said, look, I'm not saying he's definitely a mole, but I know there's a mole hunt. I know my sister found money in, in the drawer. I know that he is talking about retiring to Russia. I mean, Poland, excuse me. This is in the middle of the Cold War. An FBI agent retiring to Poland, that didn't make sense. So he said, I put those things all together and I think you should look at Hansen. He reports this to an, another agent, a supervisor, a guy, Agent Lyle. Lyle says, no, it didn't happen that way. The conversation is very different. And so in the book, I put both sides of that story in and let you, the reader, decide what actually happened. So in regards to um, his relationship with Bonnie, uh, could you talk a little bit more about, I mean, she immediately thought, oh my God, this money, uh, he's paying a mistress. Uh, Could you talk about their relationship a bit more? Because it sounds like uh, even if he was a devout Catholic, they had some trust issues there. Oh, and, and there's reason for Bonnie to be skeptical because he may have been having a, a relationship with a, a stripper, basically. Um, I don't know if she knew about that or not. There's no indication that she does. But, you know, he gives to Jack Hoshauer, this friend I was telling you about, he sends to Jack Hoshauer when Jack is in the war fighting in Vietnam, he sends nude pictures of Bonnie to his best friend. And he also tells the best friend when he's back, you know, in town, hey, if you, there's a people, you know, in my inner shower, you could take a look at her showering. You could even watch us having sex. I mean, really kind of gross stuff. And this is, again, from a devout Catholic. I mean, so I don't think Bonnie knew about the porn or anything like that, that she was kind of an unwilling participant. But, you know, you just wonder, living under the same roof with this guy for all those years, what did she know or what did she just try to, what did she know and and, and not believe? You know, let's put it that way. It sounds like almost everything about Robert Hansen is him sort of, um, it's, it's projecting an image. So he's the devout Catholic, but he's, you know, also uh, very sexually fetishistic. He's, um, you know, he's anti-communist, but he's giving but he's secrets to right. Right. I mean, this guy, when I spoke with Charney, the psychiatrist, you know, I said, give me answers, basically. And Charney just said, this is one of the strangest cases he's ever had. You know, the compartmentalization was how he figured out that Hansen could keep going in his own mind for so long. But, you know, he was anything but what we would think of as a good Catholic or a good Christian. I mean, it just, you know, everything that he did flies in the face of that. Now, before we start wrapping up, uh, we should talk about what, what happens to Hanson after he's caught, because, uh, I mean, he's he's in the same Supermax, actually, as uh, the Unabomber, I believe. As the Unabomber. Yeah, well, he's in, he's so, so he's caught, and they, they work out a deal, basically, because espionage, being a traitor, is a death penalty case. And they decided, the attorney general at the time decided, we won't execute him if he tells us everything he knows. So they do that, and Bonnie as well. Uh, what exactly did he say? We'll never know. I mean, that's top secret, highly classified. But he is able to get death penalty off the table. He has life imprisonment. He's no chance of getting out. He's in 23 hour a day solitary confinement. 
And yeah, like it's funny to think that in that one hour that he's out, maybe he's chatting it up with the Unabomber or El Chapo or you know any of the bad guys that are there. Um, Bonnie, what's interesting too is Bonnie actually is still getting his pension. That was one of the deals they made. He really, at the end, and Charney talks about this, seemed to care a lot about her. That That's interesting you say that because th- there's, in some ways he comes off as a person that is really just only concerned about himself. But then we find out that he, you know, he does seem to care about his wife. He does seem to. And, and Charney confirms that, that, that Bonnie was on the top of his mind, that he wanted to make sure that she wasn't prosecuted, that she didn't know anything. And the FBI believed that. Uh, I, I really do think that, yes, she knew at the beginning, but she thought that he'd stopped. Uh, and she just didn't want to let in those thoughts into her head because she must have had them. I mean, again, paying all that money in cash, you know, cash is everywhere. Very strange for an FBI agent who draws a, you know, bi-weekly kind of salary or bi-monthly salary. If you could, uh, I know you, you couldn't speak to Bonnie because I, I think there's like no. a, yeah, the there's- plea, The plea agreement, yeah, prohibits Bonnie or uh, Hanson speaking to the press or anybody else. But maybe maybe you could talk about wh- where is Bonnie Hanson now? Because I know, I, I don't think she ever divorced. Yeah. No, no, she didn't divorce him. Uh, maybe, I mean, she's getting his pension. I don't know if that factors in on it, but she taught for a long time. I think she just retired while I was writing this book, but she taught at a, the same you know parochial school that she's always taught at. Their kids seem to have grown up and be fine. Um, you know, one wonders if they have a relationship or not. What I was told through the FBI agents that I interviewed is that Bonnie actually goes to see him Nobody else that they know of does. And I know the other figure uh, that I wanted to talk about was um, the, the best friend, uh, Jack. Uh, what what yeah. more can we say about him? Because I think he still considers Hanson a friend, right? He does. Um, he was at an event. He lives in the, in the Midwest. He was at an event, a rotary event. And somebody said, you know, do you know Robert Hanson? He said, Robert Hanson is my best friend. And this is in a group of people. He still thinks of Robert Hansen as his best friend, even though, you know, and I talk about this a little bit in the book, there was a point where Robert Hansen might've been trying to set up or groom Jack Hoshauer, his friend, because Hoshauer was also involved in intel and intelligence community. I mean, you know, Jack's a good guy, really nice guy. I spent a lot of time with him, Uh, but yeah, still considers Hansen his best friend. And uh, what else has happened with regards to some of the other figures involved with uh, the story you tell? Because we've mentioned some of them, Mike uh, Rochford and um, David Major. Where are those people now? They uh, both Major and Rochford have retired. And, you know, this was, you know, it's a painful case, right? It's a, not an easy case to talk about because it's not it's a win, but it's a it's a win at great cost. And a complete blemish against the FBI. And I'm the daughter of an FBI agent. I worked with FBI agents when I was a federal prosecutor. And you have to understand that 99.9% of them are not political. They may have their political feelings, but they're not political in their job. And they do a good job. I mean, they're out there doing solid work, keeping us safe, doing exactly what my dad did and other agents that I worked with. But you get one guy like this, and it sticks in the craw of, of a Rochford or a major, you know, that this could have happened and under their watch. 
how does this relate to the situation we see today? Because you sort of mentioned earlier um, the, this whole Russia-Ukraine situation. And uh, I think you've spoken to a lot of people uh, within the Intel world that are that would, you've asked them, well, what does this mean for today? And I think they've had some interesting answers. Exactly. I mean, one agent put it really well. He said, I asked him, could there be another Hanson today? He said, will there be another bank robbery? Will there be, be more fraud? You know, will there be no, more murder? Of course, there'll be more espionage. It's a crime. And people are motivated to do crimes all the time. And espionage is no different. So when he put it like that, it said, I, you know, like, that makes sense. That makes sense. The FBI just has to be better at catching these guys or thwarting them from the beginning. Yeah, I, you know, in a way it's, it, you know, you can say, oh, will there be a Robert Hansen tomorrow? Or is there already one now? <laughs> you know, it's, an, right. it's impossible. No, yeah. And I have to say, I have to admit that this is no brilliance on my part. I just kind of use that, you know, could there be another Hansen today? as a throwaway line at the end of an interview. And yet after one or two people said yes, and, and there probably already is, I made sure I asked everybody because that was so, so shocking to me that this could be happening now. And these are high level agents. Um, some of them still in the agency, you know, telling me, yeah, this is, they're worried about it. You know, stand up, you stand up and pay attention when somebody says that to you. So I guess that leads to the, the one, major question I have uh, for the end of this conversation, which is how can we avoid, um, you know, Robert Hansen's cropping up in the future uh, or, or how do we stop moles um, within our intelligence agencies? You know, uh, certainly by doing more of what they didn't do with Hansen, you know, by updating those security clearances, by checking finances, financials, by polygraphing, you know, um, drug test, anything like that. Every time I walked into my office when I was a federal prosecutor, I knew I could be facing a polygraph. I didn't eat poppy seed bagels because they can test positive for opioid, you know? So I, I was very aware that I was being watched. And, you know, you have to say, well, that's an invasion of your privacy, but you sign up for that, right? When you become a prosecutor or become an agent, there has to be more of that. I mean, these people are entrusted with our very top secrets and that the agency that is producing them and, and training them also needs to be watching them. If we could too, I wanted to go back to something you said earlier that most agents, uh, they, they don't want the agencies themselves to be politicized. You know, a, an individual right. agent may have political views, but uh, it was interesting you said that because I, I wanted to ask you, um, what is the importance of, of uh, an agency uh, remaining sort of apolitical, because I've covered that on my show before, and it would be interesting to get your thoughts on it. Yeah, because you're talking about people that are there to uh, investigate and, you know, turn over information, evidence to a prosecutor who then decides whether or not there's enough to prosecute, to work with other agencies and other agents, you know, in DEA, for example, the IRS, the State Department. And these people, you know, they cannot be bringing a political agenda. Now, we know that the U.S. attorneys are chosen politically. We know that the FBI head is chosen politically. We know all that, but that should not seep down to the line agents who are out there, you know, just doing the job of finding the evidence and giving that over to the prosecutor. Neither party, prosecutor nor the agent, should have a political agenda. That's just how it's supposed to run. I'm not saying it always does, but I'm saying that's how it's supposed to run. 
So in closing, uh, with my listeners, if they happen to pick up the book, um, what do you hope they get out of this conversation or just from reading the book? It's going to be a fun ride, I hope. I mean, I've written a lot of thrillers and, you know, uh, fiction. So I try to write my nonfiction in a way that goes fast. You're trying to move the chapters. You're trying to to find out what's next. And I did two years of research. I mean, all of these people that we kind of touched on, their stories are, I give them good room to tell their stories, even if there's a conflict in some of them. Because I think that we need to learn from history in all of these cases, whether it's Unabomber or Manson or Hansen, so that history, bad history, doesn't repeat itself. That's the only way we can learn is taking a lesson from history. And I, I was also going to say, too, uh, do we know what whatever happened to, I, I guess, uh, the, the Russian contact for Hansen? I think he actually ended up writing a memoir. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, as far as we know, none of them have been executed or done with. I mean, they did a great job, right, from the Russians' perspective. Um, and the guy that actually gave us that information was pay- paid $7 million, is in witness protection, lives some here with, somewhere here with his family, and is safe. Even, even, you know, Rochford knows his name, and Rochford said, I will go to my grave without, you know, naming this person. Well... I want to thank you, uh, Lise Wheel, for coming on Parallax Views. And I hope folks will enjoy the book. I hope so, too. I think you'll enjoy it and you'll learn something from it, which is the point of uh, good books, right? Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversations with Ira Shapiro and Lise Wheel. Be sure to check out their books. And as always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallaxies, please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. All the information for how you can help support this show can be found there. And with that being said... Until next time... You've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like great. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff is a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.